We're going to dive right in. Acts chapter 2, beginning with verse 1. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven, as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Let's set the scene this morning. The book of Acts, it opens with Jesus leaving his followers with specific instructions before ascending to heaven. Acts 1 tells us that Jesus commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me, for John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit, Jesus said, not many days from now. And then he proceeded to promise that each of them would receive power when the Holy Spirit had come upon them. That's important right from the beginning to establish a simple concept. It's not too groundbreaking, not too radical. It's very simplistic. And that is the fact that these men and women who have gathered together were not strangers to the Holy Spirit. They weren't strangers. Each of them, we're told in John chapter 20, verse 22, had received the Holy Spirit, the indwelling Spirit for salvation, for regeneration. We're told that Jesus breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. And if Jesus tells you to receive something, my guess is you're receiving it. At this point, we find them in Jerusalem being obedient to Jesus' instructions, doing what? They're waiting for the Holy Spirit, someone they're already familiar with, they've experienced the indwelling themselves. In addition to that, they've watched Jesus model the Spirit-filled life during his ministry, and they're waiting. They're waiting for a new promised aspect of their relationship with the Holy Spirit that they had yet to experience. And consider for a moment the implications of that reality. Here we have a group of people who have been redeemed from sin by the work of Jesus on the cross. These men and women have been regenerated by the indwelling spirit in their hearts. They've been born again by the grace of Jesus through faith and his work for them. And yet, even then, redeemed, regenerated, born again, it's clear that an essential, vital element of the Christian life was missing. To the point that Jesus is like, don't go anywhere, don't do anything, gather together, go back to the up, wait in Jerusalem, don't go anywhere, don't do anything, don't say anything, don't interact with anyone, you go and just wait. You've been redeemed, you've been regenerated, you've been saved by the blood of the lamb, but now you need to do nothing. And you need to wait because something is missing. Understand, though rebirth is a crucial step to life in Christ, it is by no means the mechanism by which we can attain all that God has for us. Salvation, as a most glorious work, indeed provides me with newness of life. But I must 
have the Holy Spirit. Fill me to overflowing, to infuse me with power from on high if I am to live the new life that I've been called to. You can do nothing apart from the Holy Spirit. You can be saved, regenerated, born again, but you can do nothing when it comes to the life that Jesus has called you to without the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Think of it this way, salvation. Salvation might open dead eyes so that they can see. Like in the moment that salvation might open my eyes to a whole new world, a whole new spiritual world, I had no idea existed. But without complete reliance upon the Holy Spirit's influence, you would be powerless to experience it. It would be like waking up from a coma, paralyzed. You can see the new world, but you can't do anything. You have no power, you can't move, you can't speak, you can do nothing. But then that power fills you and it enables you to experience what Jesus died to provide you. Now he gave his life to Jesus at an early age and he began his ministry in the year 1855. The great American evangelist D.L. Moody recounts an interesting experience that occurred in the year 1871, an event that he said changed his life forever. He's been in ministry, by the way, over 20 years at this point. Moody recounts how two women used to attend his meetings and sit in the front row. He could see by the expression on their faces that they were praying. They weren't listening to him. They were praying. Well, at the close of one of the services, kind of a little wigged out by it, he approached these two ladies and he asked, what are you doing? And they're like, well, we're praying for you. And he kind of thought for a moment. He's like, well, why don't you pray for the people? And they replied, because you need the power of the Holy Spirit. I need the power of the Holy Spirit? Why, Moody would recall. He says, I thought I had power. I had, at this time, the largest congregation in Chicago. And there were many conversions. He says that I was in a sense satisfied, but right along those two godly women, they ignored me and they kept praying. And their earnest talk about anointing for special service set me to thinking. I asked them to come and talk with me and they poured out their hearts in prayer that I might receive the filling of the Holy Spirit. And there came this great hunger. Moody recounts into my soul, I didn't know what it was. And I began to cry out as I never had before. I really felt I did not want to live if I couldn't have the power that they spoke of for service. Moody recounts the night his life changed when he says he was baptized with the Holy Spirit. He says, my heart was not in the work of begging, he said. I could not appeal. I was crying all the time that God would fill me with his spirit. Well, one day in the city of New York, oh, what a day. I cannot describe it. I seldomly refer to it. It is almost too sacred an experience to name. Paul had an experience of which he never spoke for 14 years. I can only say that God revealed himself to me. And I had such an experience of his love that I had to ask him to stay his hand. I went to preaching again. The sermons were not different. I did not present any new truths and yet hundreds were converted. I would not now be placed back where I was before that blessed experience if you should give me all the world. Moody, a convert, a believer, a follower of Jesus, a minister, a pastor. Yet he understood that something 
was missing. And it was the baptism of the Holy Spirit that changed D.L. Moody's life for all time. What we find here in Acts chapter 2, these first couple verses, it's a powerful, sobering reality. The life that Jesus died for you to live, it requires more than being saved from sin. It necessitates you being filled, refilled, and filled again with the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, I'm not saying that salvation, nothing's required of salvation other than the atoning work of Jesus, but we're talking about the life that we live after we've been saved. You need the Holy Spirit. Well, we're told that when the day of Pentecost had fully come. Since the day of Pentecost marked the beginning of what was known as the Feast of First Fruits, which was the second of three mandatory Jewish feasts everyone was required to attend, Jerusalem is packed. Jerusalem is filled with really the same group of people that had been present for the Feast of Passover. The Feast of First Fruits was a celebration that signified the completion of the wheat harvest and the faithful provisions of God for another year. Everyone would come and present their first fruits, or the first of the harvest, thanking God for providing. Leviticus 23, God instructed that the day of Pentecost would occur seven Sabbaths, or 49 days following Passover, plus one additional day. This is why we call it the day of Pentecost, penta meaning 50. It's 50 days following the feast of Passover, which is interesting because that means that this day, when Pentecost had fully come, we find ourselves on what day? On Sunday, the day where the church was already gathering and one accord to recognize the resurrected Jesus. Since we know that Jesus was crucified on Passover, he rose three days later, Sunday morning. He ministered for 40 days before ascending to heaven. We're left with a period of 10 days by which these 120 disciples have been in Jerusalem waiting. 10 days. Think about that for a moment. Waiting for 10 days. I mean, Jesus ascended and said, go back to Jerusalem and wait. And so they get back to Jerusalem and I can see like two, three hours later, they're ready. Like they're filled with anticipation. Clearly it's coming. And then the first day kind of, it, it goes and it ends, starts, it closes, nothing happens. Day two comes and goes, nothing happens. They're kind of scratching their head. Then they're thinking, oh, duh, day three, right? Day three, the resurrection. Clearly, Jesus would be coming day three, but day three opens and it closes. Nothing happens. They're beginning to wonder. Day four, day five, day six, day seven, completion, right? Clearly, seven days God created, he rested, all that jazz. It's got to be day seven came and it went. Their anticipation. Luke tells us, that while they're waiting, they were all with one accord in one place. Now, though we can conclude from the context established in Acts chapter 1 that it's the same 120 people that have gathered together, I, I highly doubt any of them had left. I do think we kind of make a mistake when we conclude they're in the same upper room 
that they had been in before. Luke, if you note, he doesn't tell us they're in the upper room. He just says that they're together, one accord, in what? One place. He does say that they're sitting in a house. But the Greek word that's used for house, it can mean house, but it can also in certain instances refer to the house of God. It's clear from what happens later in the chapter that wherever they are would have to be accessible by at least, at a minimum, 3,000 people, which means that the locale was probably one of the outer courts of the temple precincts. Most scholars tend to think that uh, on the eastern side, the southeastern side, there was a, an area known as Solomon's Portico, and that they were probably gathered in this area. It had enough space by which this 120 could gather together, could meet. It is the day of Pentecost, the beginning of the Feast of First Fruits, as Jews already in Jerusalem. No doubt they're going to make their own offerings before the Lord. And so it seems reasonable that they're gathered together, not in this upper room, like we would think, but instead in an outer courtyard of the temple precinct. Now, though Luke doesn't tell us what the 120 disciples are doing, it seems consistent to conclude that though the location might have changed, the activity remained the same, that they were continuing with one accord in what? In prayer and supplication, waiting for the Holy Spirit when? And you gotta get yourself in the scene. They're in this outer courtyard of the temple. There's tons of people piled around, coming in, coming out. The activity of the temple, it's busy. Places filled to overflowing. And they're in this nook, praying, seeking the Lord, waiting for the Holy Spirit, when suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing, mighty wind. And it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them divided tongues as a fire, and one sat upon each of them. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit, began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Wow, what a scene, what an occurrence, what activity. Now, let's unpack the text to really get into the nitty-gritty of what's happening. And suddenly, suddenly, without warning, the Holy Spirit makes an unexpected entrance. Now, please observe, there's nothing different in regards to what they were doing or their activity that brought the Holy Spirit down. It wasn't like they had changed the routine, had changed their, their, their praying, their, their worshiping, they're just seeking the Lord. Their, their words have not changed. Their activities have not changed. It's just the day has changed. It's a new day. They're not doing anything that would be like magically conjuring up this outpouring of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit was the promise of the Father. It's a gift of God. It's not as though they're like, okay, desperate times call for desperate measures. It's day 10. It's time to break out the snakes. <laughs> time to break out some snakes and maybe some tambourines and let's start dancing a jig because we're, where's this Holy Spirit guy coming, right? It's not as though that they all like, okay, we need this spirit, so let's start uh, getting down on all fours and barking like dogs, and maybe that will conjure up, and the Holy Spirit will come. Maybe there's something we can do now. No, they're just doing what they had been doing. It's a gift. It's not earned. It's given to be received. <laughs> the fact that they were sitting 
serves to illustrate, I think, yes, the unexpected nature of the moment. But it also serves to illustrate that, once again, there was nothing crazy to what was happening here. They're not river dancing around Solomon's portico trying to get the Holy Spirit. They're sitting, they're still, they're praying, and they're waiting. Now, though unexpected, the entrance of the Holy Spirit was indeed dramatic. There is no doubt that something was happening out of the ordinary because Luke tells us that there came this sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house. Now, note, Luke's subject of concern, the emphasis here, is the sound that's coming from heaven. He says it's the sound that was like that of a rushing mighty wind. There's no wind. It's not as though there's Peter and John and like one of their toupees goes flying off because this wind is rushing through. No, it's, there's a sound. And so Luke's focus is this sound and trying to help you get your brain around the sound, what it was like to be there. And he's like, the sound, it was like a rushing mighty wind. The Greek word wind can literally be translated breath or actually a little more creepy, breathing. There was this rushing, mighty breathing, this heavy, <sighs> suddenly there's this heavy breathing from heaven, this sound. You know, it's significant that we find this word wind and breath because in almost every other place where it's translated, it can go back and forth in Hebrew and Greek as spirit. Wind and spirit are almost synonymous when it comes to scripture, that wind is a picture of the Holy Spirit. And thus, that there was a sound as of a wind would indicate these men as scholars of scripture, as, as students of scripture, understanding scripture would recognize, okay, there's this sound. It's like a wind. That means it's the Holy Spirit. It's a foundational typology presented in the Old Testament. Genesis 1, the Spirit of God. Genesis 2, God breathed the Spirit into man. Ezekiel 37, the Spirit called the dry bones to, to, to take on flesh and become anew. They recognize the significance of the sound being the wind, being the Holy Spirit. Now, to ensure that there was no mistaking this wind for the air conditioning kicking on or the gentle morning breeze... Luke tells us that the sound was of a rushing mighty wind, and it was coming from heaven. Rushing is the Greek word pharaoh, which literally means to move with bearing. The word carries with it the suggestion of force, of speed. The word mighty is the Greek word bios, meaning violent or forcible. Luke tells us the sound it was so overwhelming, it was so powerful that it filled the whole house, a sound that fills a house. Imagine hearing the coming of a tornado. I've never experienced this, but reading about it, they, they describe it as being like a thousand locomotives bearing down on you. You can hear it and you can feel it. Now, after describing what they had heard, Luke then attempts to describe what they see. So they hear the sound, and now what do they see? Well, then there appeared to them divided tongues as a fire, and one sat upon each of them. 
what? <laughs> Explain that exactly? Divided tongues as a fire, one sat upon each of them. First, note that since what they saw clearly was accompanying what they heard, and since we know what they heard was the Holy Spirit, we can conclude that what's happening here is that Luke is providing a unique physical depiction of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, which means that phrases like divided tongues as a fire are not to be taken literally, but are only included to serve as a limited description of what's being seen. If there's literally fire over top of their heads, then they're catching on fire. That would change the entire story. The church there waiting for the pouring out of the Holy Spirit and God lights them all on fire and the church ends. I mean, like, like really, like if it was literal fire, we have a major problem. You got ladies who've gotten all dolled up to go to the temple with hairspray immediately igniting, running around the portico. It would have been nuts. Secondly, if you examine the original structure of the Greek sentence here, the verse would be better translated for us, there appeared to them tongues of fire dividing. And that's important because this indicates that whatever was seen it couldn't be defined. Like Luke does not try to describe or define what he's seeing. He's only trying to, to give us a visual understanding of, of the overarching description. Like there's actually no subject. The subject is the Holy Spirit. Everything else are only descriptive words following this deafening sound they saw. This, I'm going to say, single source of light. And what does it do? It divided in such a way that it appeared as if it were many tongues. So one source of light dividing itself out from the single source as if it were tongues. So, so Luke's doing his best to just try to like give us a description of what's happening. The single source, it divides like tongues. Okay, I get, I get that. Single source is just spreading itself out. And then what happens? It sits upon each of them. Each tongue, we're told, was as a fire. This means that visually, each tongue, or as the source divides, it possessed possibly a, a brilliance of color, light. Behaviorally, each tongue might have flickered and danced similar to what, if, what would happen with fire. Now, it's not an accident that fire's introduced in the picture here because it's a, a typology also of the Spirit of God. We find it all throughout the Old Testament. There was a pillar of fire that did what? That led the children of Israel throughout the wilderness. Cloud by day, pillar of fire by night. We see that God appeared to Moses, how? In a burning bush that didn't burn, but was burning. Kind of a weird thing. Also, Elijah's trying, you know, Elijah's hitchhiking his way to heaven, and God's like, I'm going to send a chariot of fire to pick him up and bring him home. God would send fire from heaven to engulf a sacrifice that was being offered to him to do what? To show his pleasure. The first that comes to mind is when Elijah and the prophets of Baal are having a barbecue cook-off, right? 
And they're going back and forth and they're doing their thing. And Elijah's, all he's doing is dumping water on his, his altar. And boom, fire from heaven comes down. Not only engulfs the offering, but destroys the prophets of Baal. Like fire from heaven. The picture of fire, it's significant because it always denotes God's pleasure and purification. The refiner's fire. This tells us that the principal purpose of the power of the Holy Spirit being poured out on these people and us is to produce the power to live a life of purity and holiness before God. Now, most common depictions of this scene place this aura of light dancing on top of each of their heads. Most of the time, it's just the 12, but no, Luke doesn't classify that. He says all of them. It's not just the apostles. Everyone present all 120, this tongue of fires on their head. So they, they get the picture wrong because they just place it on the, 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 the 12 apostles. But Luke, he doesn't even tell us as it's depicted that it's on their head. You often see these like little tongues in like old classical pictures resting on their heads. I don't think that that's actually uh, accurate. All Luke says is that it sat upon each one of them. Now, if up until this point, Luke has been describing the presence of the Holy Spirit, I believe he is now providing us a physical depiction of the spiritual activity of the Holy Spirit. The Greek word sat, kathizo, it literally means to confer a kingdom onto one or to appoint. And then we find following this word sat, the Greek word upon which we know is epi, and what immediately followed. So the Holy Spirit sat or conferred upon each of them, came upon them, which we also know as the filling or indwelling, and what? Well, obviously, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. So the phrase sat upon, I don't think it indicates that it was like resting on top of their heads, but instead, it was now the fulfilling of the very promise that Jesus had given them that they would receive power when the Holy Spirit had come upon you, that Luke, this, this act of this source of light coming upon them, sitting upon them, is actually, it's filling them. That it's a physical description of a spiritual activity. And it is significant that the Holy Spirit came upon each of them. In John 16, verse 7, Jesus made an incredible and in some ways unbelievable comment. He said to his disciples, I tell you the truth, it is, note, to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper, speaking of the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. <laughs> Wait a second. Jesus is telling us that it is better for us. It's to our advantage that we don't have Jesus here and instead the Holy Spirit, that it's better to have the Spirit than the physical presence of Jesus. Like, wait a second, what advantage do we find then in the presence of the Holy Spirit that we wouldn't have in the bodily presence of Jesus? I mean, both are equal members of the triune Godhead. Both are equally sovereign, wise, holy, powerful, etc. How is it then that the presence of the Holy Spirit is to our better advantage than the bodily presence of Jesus in our midst? The answer, unlike Jesus, 
the Holy Spirit is omnipresent and can indwell every believer. One source of light, always remaining one source of light, but then dividing itself out to equally fill each and every one present. The same spirit can be one and indwell all of us at the same time because the spirit of God can be omnipresent, whereas Jesus is limited to a physical dwelling. The Bible tells us that when Jesus came to earth to dawn human flesh, he willingly laid aside some of the divine attributes of God. One of them being he could no longer be omnipresent. Jesus couldn't be in all places at all times. He limited himself to this dwelling of flesh. It also seems that the glorified Jesus is still in a limited state. That doesn't make him less, less being God, but he has still limited himself. We're told that Jesus, right, he did what? He ascended to heaven from earth to sit at the right hand of the Father. And then the angels prophesied that he would do what? At some point in the future, he would leave heaven, come back to earth and set up a kingdom. Like not exactly the activities of someone that's everywhere at all times. See what I'm saying? Like Jesus left to the point that a couple chapters after this, Stephen is being stoned, the martyr, and we're told that he looked to heaven and what? Jesus was what? Next to him, cuddling him? No, Jesus was in heaven and stood up, got onto his feet in the halls of heaven and watched. See, Jesus can't be everywhere at all times. He's in heaven. So the question then kind of arises, right? And what did Jesus mean in Matthew 18 when he said, for where two or three are gathered in my name, I am there in the midst of them. I know some of you are thinking that. Is Jesus in our midst this morning? Yes, absolutely. Jesus is in our midst this morning. But let me explain how. He is in our midst not because he's come to us because we've taken time to come before him. Jesus is still in heaven. He's our high priest. He's our advocate. He's the intercessor. What are we doing? We are gathering together and then coming before the throne of Jesus. When we pray, you're not praying to the Jesus that's like right next to you. You are praying so that your prayers go to the halls of heaven. When we worship, it's not as though Jesus' aura is in our midst. No, our worship, we're told, ascend to heaven as a sweet-smelling offering. Jesus is in heaven. And when we meet with him, we come to meet with him. In a spiritual sense, we are coming before the throne. Hebrews 4, verse 16, let us therefore do what? Boldly come where? To the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace for help in our time of need. You see, if Jesus remained on earth, the limitations of his ability to help you live the Christian life would be obviously limited. Think about it. Like Jesus couldn't be with you all the time. He couldn't be with everyone all the time. Jesus would be like camped out in Jerusalem and you'd get to see him maybe once in your lifetime. Be like, yo, Jesus, high five. It would be like Jesus is going around in a Pope mobile. I mean, he can't be in all places at all times. So it's like, man, I really need help. I've got this temptation facing me. I really need to talk to Jesus. But he's, all I'm getting is the busy signal because I'm calling Jerusalem and like me and a thousand other people facing temptation are trying to get through for Jesus. Like, no, he's in heaven, so like, there's no 
we're like call forwarding or waiting. Like he's in heaven, we come before him. And what happens? You see, Jesus knew his job would be more effective in heaven and that it would be to our advantage for him to be in heaven. And for what? For the Holy Spirit to come, to be our help, to aid us by providing in, 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 in each of us internal power to live the external life, the life that Jesus has called us to live. These four words, upon each of them. I hope you understand they are unique to the plan of God when it comes to humanity. You know, in the Old Testament, we find few instances where the Holy Spirit was poured out on the nation of Israel as a whole. On the rarest of occasions, uh, one estimate had it like maybe 20, give or take, that we find the Holy Spirit being poured out on an individual in the Old Testament. Very rare. Rare that the Holy Spirit would be poured out on a group of people, even rare that it would be on individuals. I mean, on occasion, a, a prophet or a priest or a judge, a king, would experience this, this indwelling filling of the Holy Spirit. Samson's a great example, but it's rare. But in this instance, for the first time in human history, the Holy Spirit was not sent to cover all of them. It wasn't sent to just fill a few of them. That we're told the Holy Spirit comes upon each of them individually. Each and every disciple of Jesus that was present that day experienced in their own life this unique outpouring of the Spirit of God. Although it's true that the Spirit's, the spiritual experience of the baptism of the Holy Spirit is available for every believer. And, and, and let me uh, like understand what I'm saying by that. Like that what's happening here on the day of Pentecost, the spiritual event itself, the experience of the baptism of the Holy Spirit was not just for this group. It wasn't just for these people. It was for all of us, for every disciple of Jesus throughout all of history. And why? Well, because the Spirit will be poured out again and again and again and again. And the book of Acts, sometimes on new groups of people, often the same group of people. So obviously it's not limited just to this day because it happens again. However, it is also true that this physical manifestation that accompanies the spiritual activity was unique to this moment of history. And why do I say that? <laughs> You'll never see it happen again, ever. Like you never read of it happening again in the scripture. The sound of a rushing mighty wind. You never, never, scripture never says that happens again. Tongues of divided fire, whatever that is, also never happens again. Doesn't happen. And I think that there are three reasons why this is the case. That the experience, the spiritual experience available for all of us throughout all of history, but the physical manifestation of the experience only unique to this moment. I think there's three explanations for why this is the case. First, uncharted waters require dramatic measures. As we discussed a few weeks ago, it was important for Jesus to physically ascend, dramatically ascend to heaven, so that his disciples knew he really left. Not only would this reinforce 
his departure, but it would also serve to heighten their anticipation for the promise of the Holy Spirit. So they would know. I mean, Jesus, during the 40 days, is playing this game of Gaia. He appears, he disappears. He appears, he disappears. He ascends dramatically to heaven so they know he's not appearing again like that. Like they can know for sure he's gone. They watched him ascend and the cloud received him. So it was dramatic. It was dramatic to reinforce what was happening for their benefit. Jesus said, I depart, and what happens? I send the Holy Spirit to you. So Jesus, in John 16, connects his departure with the Holy Spirit. His departure is dramatic. I think the sending of the Holy Spirit was meant to be too. If ascending in a dramatic fashion served this purpose, it only seems reasonable for Jesus to send the Holy Spirit and an also dramatic physical demonstration for the same purpose of authenticity. I mean, there was no doubt for them that the Holy Spirit had been poured out, right? I mean, it's not as though that they're sitting around and they're praying. Did the Holy Spirit need to be accompanied by any of these things? No. The Holy Spirit could have just filled their heart. And then they're kind of looking around like, did you feel that? Did you think that was it? You sure that was it? In much the same way, like, hey, I'm leaving. Jesus is gone. Like, I dream of genie style. And it's like, do you think he's really gone? Are you sure he's really gone? Like there was a dramatic presentation of both so that these believers would know that there would be authenticity, that they could trust what had happened. Though the spirit would be poured out again in their lives, please note that this physical demonstration was never and no longer needed for them to recognize the spiritual activity. From this point forward, they knew when the spirit was poured out. They didn't need the sound of the rushing wind and the tongue to know that they had been filled with the Holy Spirit. The second reason I think this is the case is that higher peaks require loftier understanding. Go back to how the chapter opens. When the day of Pentecost had fully come. This phrase, fully come, had fully come, it, it, it indicates more than that the day had arrived. Like, it came on the calendar, you know, like, iCal says, it's the day. Like, no, the idea presented in this phrase had fully come is that when the day of Pentecost had come to the point where the day of Pentecost was fully representative of everything it was always supposed to represent. Now, let me explain. John 5, Jesus said, you search the scriptures, that's good. Why? Because they testify of me. So scripture testified of Jesus. He also said in Matthew 5, do not think that I came to destroy the law and the prophets. I did not come to destroy them. I came to fulfill them. You see, everything in the Old Testament, from the Levitical law to the sacrificial procedures, everything had an ultimate fulfillment in the person and ministry of Jesus Christ. Everything pointed to Jesus and he fulfilled it. All of the pictures that are presented, and there are numerous in the Old Testament, pointed to Jesus. Jesus fulfilled, and the feasts are no exception. Now, we noted in our study in Mark that the Feast of Passover, which was established when God supernaturally delivered his people from Egypt, right? And it was a picture of what Jesus did on the cross, that Jesus, God's people couldn't free themselves from bondage, that God had to provide a deliverer, and that Passover, the blood of the land, that Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice, that Passover find, found its fulfillment in the work of Jesus on the cross. That that feast, 
always was a picture of the cross. And so Jesus, when he died on the cross, fulfilled Passover, which is why we have no need to celebrate Passover because Jesus is our Passover. Now we see that the day of Pentecost and the Feast of First Fruits, they find their ultimate fulfillment, how? And the coming of the Holy Spirit upon the first followers of Jesus. You can say that that 120 people were what? They were, in a literal sense, the first fruits of the new work that Jesus was going to do. Feast of Tabernacles also has meaning. They all have meaning, and they all point to Jesus. Now, this is why I believe that the Holy Spirit came in such a fashion. So much Old Testament imagery accompanying his arrival was designed to communicate a much deeper lesson. At this point in history, the Jews had gathered together 1,500 times, over 1,500 times to celebrate the day of Pentecost. But it was this day that the day of Pentecost was designed for. It was almost as though the 1,500 beforehand were the warm-up acts. This day was the main event. See, everything associated with Pentecost would now find its true fulfillment on this day when God poured out his spirit on the church. It's interesting to note in the procedures laid out in Leviticus 23 that God tells them to do something unique and in many ways contradictory to everything else in the law. He says, and I'll read it for you, that you shall bring on the day of Pentecost from your dwelling two loaves that you'll wave of two tenths of an ephah. They shall be a fine flour, and note, they shall be baked with leaven for they are the first fruits to the Lord. And celebrating the day of Pentecost, God tells them to present before him bread with leaven. And leaven was always a picture of sin. It became a picture also of the Gentiles. This day was not just for the Jews, but we'll see that the first fruits would also include what group of people? Us low down, dirty Gentiles who were also in need of God's grace. It's also a traditional legend that on the day of Pentecost, that that day was also the day that Moses received the law of God. I want to read for you what happened on the day of Pentecost when Moses received the law. We're told that Moses saw that the people were unrestrained, and he stood in the entrance of the camp, and he said, whoever is on the Lord's side, come to me. So the sons of Levi gathered with Moses, and he said, thus says the Lord God of Israel. This is an awesome service, by the way. Let every man put on his sword and go throughout the camp and let every man kill his brother, every man his companion, every man his neighbor. We're going to deal with sin. So I'm going to call you out, arm up, go back in, and kill the sinners. That's what Moses is commanding. So the sons of Levi, which were the pastors, they did according to the word of Moses and about 3,000 men of the day, of the people fell that day. Now, back to Acts. Look at verse 41 of chapter 2. We're told that the result of this day, then those who gladly received his word, Peter preaches this sermon, they were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. So when the law was given, 3,000 died. But when the Spirit was given, 3,000 souls were saved. It brings to mind Romans chapter 7 when we're told that 
when we were in the flesh. The sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit to what? To death. That the law did nothing but condemn man to hell. But we now have been delivered from the law, having died to what we were held by, so that we should serve in the newness of the spirit and not the oldness of the letter. Third reason, never miss the forest through the trees. Though the coming of the Spirit brought with it a physical demonstration, we see a greater physical demonstration yielded from where? We see a physical demonstration from the lives the Spirit had been poured out upon. See, there's always a physical demonstration when the Holy Spirit's poured out. How? In two ways. Gifts of the Holy Spirit and fruit of the Holy Spirit. Now, we're told that when the Holy Spirit filled these folks, that they began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. We're going to put that on the shelf for next week. Now, from the four verses that we read, let's bring it home. What do you need to experience the filling of the Holy Spirit this morning? What are the essentials? Like, what do you need? Power from on high to live a life of godliness. Well, first, I don't want to get too obvious but you need to be a Christian. You see, what we're talking about here you, you, doesn't make any sense. As a matter of fact, you might even be a little wigged out by it if you're not a Christian. Like if you're not already familiar with the Holy Spirit in the sense that he's filled your heart already, that he's indwelling you, this doesn't make any sense. You see, the first step is that you need to become a Christian. You know, we have a phrase in Christianity that I think is very confusing. You know, we invite people to be saved by telling them to ask Jesus into their heart. We'll even lead them in a prayer that says, Lord, please come into my heart. Save me from my sins. You know, you never find that invitation in Scripture. It's not there. You don't find it for two reasons. First, it's impossible for Jesus to come and live in your heart. He's in heaven. He's not living in your heart. A physical person is not dwelling in your heart. He can't live there. But second, Salvation isn't asking God for anything. Rather, it's making a conscious decision to accept everything Jesus has done for me, to forsake all else and follow him. Salvation is not I'm coming and I'm asking Jesus. Ask Jesus to come into your heart. Don't ask him. Accept. That's the key to salvation is not asking, but accepting what Jesus has done for you. In Mark 8, whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Acts 6, verse 31, believe on the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Nothing about Jesus like trying to figure out a way to get in you. That's weird. But this is what happens when we make a decision to accept what Jesus has done for us. You know what happens? What immediately follows is the regeneration of the indwelling Spirit of God. The Spirit is what comes inside of you. In John chapter 3, Jesus told Nicodemus, he said, Most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Unless one is born of water, and the spirit, physical birth and spiritual birth, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. 
So the rebirth is a spiritual regeneration in our heart. Romans 8, you are not in the flesh, but what? In the spirit. If indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the spirit, he is not his. So first, if you want to experience what we're talking about this morning, first accept what Jesus has done for you and be and experience regeneration. That, that's step one. Step two, set the conditions. 2 Corinthians 6, Paul said, For what fellowship is righteousness with lawlessness? And what communion has light with darkness? He says, You are the temple of the living God, speaking to believers. Therefore, come out from among them and be separated, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean, and I will receive you. I will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and my daughters. Do, do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. You know, when it comes to the fresh filling of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit coming upon us, we overlook a single reality, very simple reality, about the Holy Spirit, and that he is known as the Holy Spirit. Now, I've heard it said that power is minimized when purity is compromised. You please understand, God's glory and the Holy Spirit's power is most manifested through a life that is seeking to be pure and righteous before him. Now, you can't do it on your own, but it's about the desire of the heart. It's about the motivation. For many of us this morning, if you want to experience a fresh filling of the Holy Spirit, get saved. But for some of us, repent of your sin. Repentance of sin for some of us is the first step, an essential step to the greater filling of the Holy Spirit. And thirdly, ask. <laughs> it's that simple. You just ask. There was a reason that it took time for the Holy Spirit to be 10 days for this to happen. It had to fulfill the day of Pentecost, right? 10 days. It had to happen 10 days. But we don't have to wait at all. In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus says, if a son asks for bread from any father among you, will he give him a stone? If he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent? If he asks for an egg, will he give him a scorpion? In essence, if you ask for something that you need, would a good father give you something that would be harmful? No. Jesus says, if you then being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? So you should ask in faith for a fresh filling. 